Google is adding end-to-end encryption to emails, XN, Spy, Stalkerware, TikTok banned on government devices, Twitter is suspending Mastodon, the Mastodon account and Mastodon links to some extent. There's yet another Uber breach. Welcome to Surveillance Report 114, where we're dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news in the past week. I am Henry from TechLore. I am Nathan from The New Oil. Promo segment this week. Same promo segment. We really appreciate your support over on Patreon. That is a great way to give us support, but also for us to give you exclusive perks in the process. That's how we're able to keep this podcast free for all of you, and then we can keep things as objective as we can, because we don't feel the need to have to sell anything because of all of our patrons over there. So if you like the way we run this podcast, supporting us on Patreon is one of the best ways to do that. If you want to support us privately, we also support Monero, which is just a one-time support method that you can use to send us a little bit of cash, digital cash, and we don't know anything about you, but we see all of your support. So thank you everyone who sends us Monero. So the highlight story this week, Google is introducing end-to-end encryption for Gmail on the web. Big news. So currently this is in beta and it's only for Enterprise Plus, Education Plus, and Education Standard customers. The application to join is open until January 20th, 2023. It says this will work within and outside their domain, which we think that we think they're talking about custom domains, but I guess that could theoretically be like third-party clients somehow. We don't know what that means yet. Just so everyone knows, Google does offer client-side encryption, which is similar to end-to-end encryption already for Google Drive, Google Docs, Sheets, Slides, and Meet, and Calendar, but that's only on the Enterprise Edition. So you have to pay for Enterprise, and then you get access to the CSE, which is essentially end-to-end encryption on Google account, and, and it's oversimplifying this, but just to keep things simple. So this actually is pretty cool for Enterprise users, because and for pe- people wondering, like, why would Google offer this when they are such a privacy-invasive company? These are paid corporate accounts like this is aimed towards schools this is aimed towards companies and companies are storing sensitive things like health data that google doesn't even want to be liable to have to deal with so it makes sense why google's uh, releasing this and just so everyone knows once enabled you still have to toggle end-to-end encryption on for any email you send so it doesn't look like it's enabled by default I'm going to take the cynical approach because we're going to cover a story later about how Google is actually trying to acquire health data. I do think there's some merit to what you said about how they don't want to be uh, liable for certain types of data for certain types of customers. But at the same time, I think there's also something to be said for um, back in like 2017, I think it was, Google said they stopped scanning your emails for advertising purposes. And I, I think it's because they just have so much data at this point. It's almost like, yeah, we don't even need that data. So we're willing to back off a little bit and make you feel better But if you think about it, most people use Google Calendar, use Google Search, use Gmail, have the apps on their phone, so they're getting the location data, even if you're on iOS. I'm glad you brought this up because it digs into the nuance of the situation because what I I said was very simplified. When I'm saying they don't want to be liable for that data, I'm saying they don't want to be liable for another company's data. So like an enterprise account, that's like a company's enterprise account where they might store sensitive data data that's their own data but something like if you have google health or whatever the health equivalent is for google i don't even know anymore there's so many samsung has one apple has one that's their own data like they're collecting this data about an individual okay with that we'll move into data breaches the headline says uber suffers new data breach after attack on vendor info leaked online this allegedly includes data from uber uber eats and third-party vendors tectivity 
and trip actions, although trip actions has denied that they were involved in this breach at all. So this data appears to include mobile device management source code and therefore probably came from the mobile management mobile device management. When you sign up, they actually do ask to put a certificate on your device. It includes mobile device management source code, IT asset management reports, data destruction reports, Windows domain login names and email addresses, and other corporate information. So again, so far this is all on the corporate side, but because it does include mobile device management stuff, in my opinion, there's a possibility some other stuff might be in there. One file viewed by Bleeping Computer contained email addresses and Windows Active Directory information for over 77,000 employees. If the data was taken from Tectivity, as Uber claims, then attackers could have also accessed device info like serial numbers, makes, models, and tech specs, and user info like first name, last name, work email address, and work location details. So yeah, like I said, this might contain additional information from the contractors. Social Blade has confirmed a breach after cyber criminals post stolen user data. So Social Blade is a social media analytics platform for YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, Dailymotion, Mixer, and Instagram. Data includes email addresses, password hashes, client IDs, tokens for business API users, authorization tokens for connected accounts. Fortunately, no credit card information was part of this. Social Blade recommends user reset passwords, but is not forcing it and has cycled off tokens for business users and connected social media accounts. Our next story is a real quick one. It says cyber criminals leak personal info allegedly stolen from 5.7 million Gemini users. This is Gemini, the cryptocurrency exchange, and it contains email addresses and phone numbers obtained from a third party vendor and is being used right now for phishing attacks. They did not name who the vendor was. Just to add on there, for those who... Gemini is a cryptocurrency exchange. So there's multi, several layers to this. A, if you're not using the same email and phone number for everything, you're already better off. But on top of that, be aware about phishing. But it doesn't matter if you get phished because you're not keeping your cryptocurrencies in your exchanges. Right, people? So again, we're layering up defenses. If you do even one of those, you'd be pretty safe against something like this. Just wanted to add that in. Colombian energy supplier EPM was hit by a black cat ransomware attack. So EPM is one of Colombia's largest public energy, water, and gas providers, providing services to 123 municip... I can never say that f***ing word. Municipalities? Municipalities. Okay. Providing services to 123 municipal... Municipal... <laughs> you got this. I believe in you. <laughs> municipalities. Right? Yep. Municipalities. Per- providing services to 123 municipalities. They had over $25 billion in revenue in 2022. So this attack disrupted operations and took down online services, forcing 4,000 employees to work from home as IT infrastructure went down and the company's website was no longer available. It's unclear exactly what data was stolen, but it does appear that data was lifted from about 40 devices prior to encryption. Okay, this next story, oh, it just gets worse the longer we go. Let's start at the top. So it says, facial recognition researcher left a trans database exposed for years after using images without permission. I'm going to quote a little bit of the article here. In 2013, researchers at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, published a facial recognition data set consisting of more than 1 million images of trans people who had uploaded videos of their medical transition to YouTube. So uh, basically, these people would take pictures of themselves, like a selfie every day, and then time lapse it to show their transition. The researcher used to use the video without the explicit permission of the owners and with the stated goal of training facial recognition systems to recognize people before and after they start hormone replacement therapy. More recently, an audit of the database has also uncovered that the researchers left the full videos in an unprotected Dropbox until 2021. Now, obviously, there could be any number of reasons, perfectly valid reasons, that somebody might want to do this. But number one, we'll start with the low-hanging fruit. The researcher claims they tried to get permission 
But when, um, I think it was Vice did this article, when they found the owners of the videos and reached out to them, at least two of them were like, I don't know what you're talking about. Nobody ever contacted me. I never gave permission. Okay, so the researcher claims they were attempting to help stop terrorism, claiming that a terrorist could get, quote, $5 of estrogen pills on the black market and defeat a billion-dollar system, unquote. I don't care what your opinions are about LGBTQ, trans, any of that. That is the most, pardon my language, bat stupid, cop-out excuse I've ever heard in my life. He did something wrong. He screwed up. And then he tried to go straight to the most, like, this is for national defense. And literally everyone is like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. He should have said he's doing it to protect the children. That would have been more believable than this freaking excuse. Not really, for the record. But you know what I mean? Like, like I said, there are, to be fair, there are reasons that someone might want to do this. Number one, get permission. If you had a good reason, I'm sure a lot of these people would be willing to volunteer their data. But number two, that is not even remotely a good reason. Like, that is just so... It gets worse the more and more you read it. It's just... And uh, to be fair, this is Vice. They're definitely, a, by American standards, a more left-leaning outlet. So maybe that's just journalistic bias. But man, like, the more I read it, the more it was just like, this guy just gets dumber and dumber as it goes. I'm a little confused reading this because I was... I, I worked in a research lab, and there were a lot of hoops we had to go through to do things. There's, like, a lot of regulation around this, so I don't know what kind of researcher this is because there's a lot of rules regarding, like, what your subjects can be in research, and I don't know if these people are considered subjects... (laughs) or not a lot of things you have to get permission for in a research lab and even then there's a lot of rules around what you can ask and what you can do and what they can share and depending on the type of data and whether or not it's sensitive it has to be secured in certain ways there's actually like actual technical limitations like we had to have like fully encrypted hard drives and stuff so the article does touch on that there seems to be some disagreement over the school claims that he like never went through any of those official channels and like never brought it up to what is what there's like a board that oversees all this stuff They say he never brought it up to them and basically just went rogue and did this research. I don't remember if he disputes that. And I mean, to be fair, the the school could just be trying to cover their own butts. Like, hey, we never, we didn't know anything about this. They do touch on that in the article a little bit. And it seems like for one reason or another, he never formally went through those channels. I hate to be so biased, but I mean, it seems pretty obvious that this guy just... Everything about this is problematic from start to finish. Like I said, regardless of where you lean on the political spectrum, just read this story and it's so obvious that at a bare minimum, this guy didn't do this properly and had questionable motives. All right, now we're going to move into companies and we're going to start, I, I don't know what if there's a clever way of saying it, I'm just going to call it XN Spy. XN Spy Stalkerware spied on thousands of iPhones and Android devices. So this is one of those apps that claims to be for parents to keep an eye on their kids. Oh my god, people, this happens so much. Not necessarily stalkerware, but so many of these apps that you download, these third-party apps to keep track of your kids, have either suffered data breaches in the past that leaked very sensitive information about their children, or they are privacy-invasive and collect way too much data that they're sharing with advertisers. We, I, I think I can speak for both of us, we always recommend just not having it if you can, but if you do have to have it, first-party tools are always the best way to go. Of the two right now, between like Apple and Google, Apple seems to have the better tools, but I'm not super familiar. I don't have a kid. Now, getting back to the story, this tool that they used explicitly markets to catch cheating spouses and other disturbing implications as well. So it's not just for kids, but it's quite literally advertising to be stalkerware. This article discusses how such apps are typically vulnerable and how that puts victims at even a higher risk. Um, vulnerabilities that credentials and private keys are left in the code, which is bad or could argue arguably is just not encryption and even exposing the collected data to other third parties 
So the rest of this article is basically exposing this particular app. Generally speaking, StockAware is something we're very against, uh, actually very funny. Probably like once every few months over on the Techler side of things, we get an email from a StockAware company. <laughs> and I'm like, do you, do you understand what we do? Like, do you, do you understand? Um, I know we get like a lot of crap from people who don't understand what we do, but that one, it seems like they like actually targeted us because they're like, oh, they're into privacy and security. They must love StockAware. So our next story is about Google. Uh, like I said, we're going to talk about Google's uh, inquisition or uh, crusade into health stuff. I don't know. Inside Google's quest to digitize troops' tissue samples. This article basically just outlines a deal that Google apparently has with the Department of Defense to use military members' data to help train AI to find, study, and cure diseases. The article claims that Google has tried to collect so much data that at one point the leadership behind... Uh, there's this specific health... Uh, the Joint Pathology Center is the the facility that they're trying to access all this data from. Apparently, it's the largest biorepository in the world, like the largest collection of biological samples and tissue data and whatnot. Google tried to collect so much data that the people from the JPC were legitimately concerned that they would be able to de-anonymize patients. So this article's super, super long, and that's kind of like the TLDR of the article, but it's definitely worth a read. I encourage you guys to make... It'll admittedly probably take about 30 minutes to read. It's a really long article, but it's totally worth it because it, it's one of those articles that it details, like, how they got into this. It goes back into the history. It lays out a bunch of ethical concerns about patient consent, privacy. It goes into all that stuff. It touches on everything. So it's a really well-written article. It's from ProPublica. I definitely encourage you guys to make some time to read it this week. All right, the next story... New Google Photos upgrade makes key feature worse, though it's probably good for our audience. So if you have your Android phone set to take photos with the location turned off, Google will still attempt to figure out the location, but it cannot use the precise location data or location history feature to do this anymore. The author argues that this results in better user privacy, but can break features like memories or the ability to search for photos from a specific place. The author notes you can enable location on your camera, or if you're concerned about privacy, you just go the other direction by disabling estimate estimate missing locations to avoid Google analyzing the photos. So, yeah. Though, I'm sure both of us are going to tell you, if you're really concerned about privacy, you shouldn't be using Google Photos in its current state. But yeah, I mean, it's still an improvement for people who are in the Google Photos ecosystem. Our next story is a real quick one. Apple fixes new WebKit zero-day used in attacks against iPhones. So, in case people needed a reason to update to the latest iOS 16.2, this is being used in the wild. This was an arbitrary code execution bug, which has been fixed with an improved state handling. So, yeah, if you want the gritty details, they're in this article. But either way, if you're an iPhone user, definitely update. And that comes along with the end-to-end encryption that you covered last week. So It does, yeah. That should have uh, should have started rolling out in 16.2. I, I already enrolled in that. It, it nice. was so easy. It was. I already had a recovery key set up, so I didn't even have to set up a recovery. It uses the same key that I've already oh. set up. Cool. I just turned on a setting, and it was good. Nice. On this note, iOS 16.3, which is currently in beta, brings support for protecting your Apple ID with a physical security key, like a YubiKey. So now you can log into your Apple account with a YubiKey. So cool. We mentioned that... We... Nate mentioned last week that this was happening, and this is now in beta. It is worth mentioning, just so people know, because none of... I don't use any Apple... I don't use any devices in beta. I just... I'm not a beta tester, but you only need one device to be in beta. So if you're on 16.2 or like the most recent version, you can log in to your Apple account with security key. You just can't enroll in it. So if you have a single device that you can enroll in a beta for, then that's all you need to enroll in this. And your other devices can stay on a non-beta variant. I'm fairly certain about that. 
This next story is really interesting and I think good news. Apple is considering dropping the requirement for iPhone web browsers to use WebKit. For those who don't know, all of the browsers on iPhone and iPad are required to use WebKit, which is open source, but it's Apple's uh, web engine. A lot of people say that for this reason, it's better just to use Safari and harden it because you know they're all WebKit anyways. I don't necessarily agree with that, but it is definitely something worth knowing and considering when you're making that decision. They may drop this requirement for other browsers to use WebKit, at least in the EU. And this is coming in response to um, did I write it in the notes? It's it's a response to there's some new legislation passed in the EU that's like anti-competition stuff. I think it was specifically aimed at Apple, but uh, if not, it definitely applies to Apple. So they're doing a number of changes, which Henry will cover the next one of those changes. But yeah, one of those changes is they might allow apps to not use WebKit. They might go ahead and roll this out to other regions just to simplify their own job instead of having to like keep one version for the EU and one version for everyone else. Or they might just do that. They certainly have the resources. So it's a little unclear, but in my opinion, this would be a huge win. They also reaffirmed that they have no plans to support RCS, and they are working to provide third-party apps with, quote, limited access to the phone's NFC chip, and didn't really elaborate on what that means. This is going to be global. I'd put, so? I'd put so much money on it, because think about it, for, for the developers, they're not going to have a WebKit Google Chrome that's running on WebKit and then Google Chrome that's built on Chromium. So you, you can't expect developers to build two different versions of apps for different regions. So, I mean, for big companies like Google, you can. Yes, but... But I see, mean, maybe that's like, what they're banking on. Maybe they'll just, like, leave it that way, so that way people who are building apps will just, like, okay, I'll just make this use WebKit so it's global. Yeah, that's always going to be an option. I, I I don't see this not being global, though, to be honest. It just seems way too complex, but... I mean, I'd be, I would love it if you were right, because I, I think it would be a win to let people use different engines and different browsers, but... Well, on this note, Apple is now also going to allow rival app stores on iPhones and iPads, at least in the EU. This is also something they're being forced to do, thanks to the EU, who is now requiring them to allow sideloading and third-party app stores. This will roll out in iOS 17 of next year. Not really privacy-related, but the EU also required Apple to move off of Lightning to USB-C. Dear people who leave comments saying regulation doesn't work, I don't know like why you think that, because Apple would just keep doing all this stuff unchecked for years, and I'm really glad that these things are happening personally. In a perfect world, you don't need to rely on regulation to get these things, but clearly the way things are, that wasn't a reality. All three of these things are uncertain if it's EU only or global. So we're going to see if USB-C, WebKit, and third-party app stores are EU only or global. And just to clarify before anyone says it, we're not saying you should only rely on legislation, but it's, 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 it's like, it's the same way you layer your defenses. Like you don't rely on just the password. You also enable 2FA. Don't rely on just legislation. Also use the tools that force them to obey your privacy. But, you know, having a little legislation on your side doesn't hurt either. People who are say, like, legislation doesn't work, it's like the only reason you can buy food at a grocery store and drive your car without worrying about it exploding or like, even living in a house that's not going to burn down, like, it's because of, like, <laughs> regulation. <laughs> so, like, there's regulation all around you all the time. Every little thing, like, even the height of the curbs that you're driving alongside, the roads, like, 
everything is regulated. There, there's definitely a such thing as overreach, and there's definitely failures in regulation, but like, to just blanket, like, oh, it never works, it causes more problems than it solves, like, absolutely not. Okay, our next story comes from GitHub. GitHub is bringing free secret scanning to all public repos. So previously, the service was only available to paying enterprise users of GitHub Advanced Security, but this is now available to everyone for free, starting immediately. Quoting the article, the service scans repositories for over 200 known token formats, and then alerts partners of potential leaks, and you can define your own regex patterns too. This is definitely a huge vulnerability that we see very often in software. I think that'll bring everyone up security-wise. Research, we're gonna move into the research section. So here's the headline, out of control. Dozens of telehealth startups sent sensitive health information to big tech companies. This is a joint investigation by STAT and the markup of 50 direct-to-consumer telehealth companies found that quick online access to medications often comes with a hidden cost for patients. Virtual care websites were leaking sensitive medical information they collect to the world's largest advertising platforms. Of the sites that collected user answers to questions, they identified Meta, Facebook, Google, TikTok, Bing, Snap, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Pinterest. Even more sites were told when a user added a prescription medication to their cart. The only telehealth service they examined that wasn't sharing data with an outside company was Amazon Clinic. <laughs> so the it's only because they're already collecting all that data in house, they, they don't need to share it with anyone. <laughs> exactly, they are the big tech company that has their own health, and if, if the other ones did it, they would do the same thing. But I think that's really funny. So out of 50 sites, just to summarize this, out of 50 sites, 47 contain Google trackers, 44 Facebook, 27 Bing, 23 TikTok, etc. There's more in the article. This is something we talk about all the time. So many websites have so many trackers in there that's just not very well regulated. And it's a way for Facebook to pretty much get access to any website anywhere without you even having a Facebook account or even without you opening facebook.com. If you're using a browser like Firefox or Brave, you're already taken care of here. I wouldn't say fully taken care of, but it's going to help a ton. Yeah, it solves most of this problem. I mean, it's going to block things like Google Analytics, Facebook Pixel. Um, I believe Firefox blocks those by default. I know Brave does. Okay, our next story is a kind of a quick one. It says Microsoft digital certificates have once again been abused to sign malware. So researchers have identified at least nine separate developer entities that have done this in recent months. So they're mostly using it to sign malware as a system driver, which would give the malware kernel level access. So they'll They'll assign this Microsoft key to sign the drivers, and then the computer says, oh, this is legitimate. Please come on in. Have total access to everything. And it's actually malware. Children are the product. Researchers find students across the country use apps riddled with ads and trackers. So we're actually sharing a transcript from a Reddit comment because the article is paywalled. So thank you for the comment, you slash butthole bomber. According to a more than 133-page report published Tuesday by the TechFost tech-focused nonprofit Internet Safety Labs, the vast majority of apps that schools suggest or sometimes require students to download are sharing their data with third parties. More than two-thirds of those apps, 78%, were caught sharing data for the purposes of monetizing those students in some way, while nearly all, 96%, were caught sharing students' device data with some sort of tech company like Google. Data included location and student login details, and this is just a constant pattern. If you're listening to Surveillance Report for the first time, we talk about this all the time. Students are constantly monetized for their data, for their information, and for anything else they can get about them. And it's worth mentioning companies like Google quite literally follow students from the moment they're in kindergarten to the time they graduate college. Yeah, I was just going to add on to that. You should read some of the other comments in this thread, because a lot of them are parents weighing in. One dude was saying he literally has to have, like, dozens of accounts. I think the article said one school had something like 2,400 different apps 
that they recommended or used. And yeah, it's just, it's out of control. All right, our last research story comes about Google One VPN. Security researchers discovered 22 issues in Google One. Three of them were medium severity, 10 were labeled as low severity, and nine described as informational observations. The most notable was that the Windows app required admin privileges, meaning that it could be used as an attack vector. If somebody was able to get into the app, then from there they could pivot into other things because it was running as admin. Google has fixed that Windows app issue. They fixed a couple of the other issues, but most of the problems have not been resolved. And I mean, on the one hand, it's good. There were no like high severity ratings, but at the same time, the fact that Google didn't fix a lot of these issues is a little bit troubling. I did want to quickly chime in. I like treating things fairly between different services. I just don't want people to be like, this is a reason not to use Google One VPN. Lots of like trusted VPN companies that we talk about, like iVPN, Molvad, they do security audits and there are issues like these in those security audits. Security audits and finding issues does not mean a service shouldn't be used. It's actually good that they found these issues and I'm happy that Google One VPN users, for better or for worse, they're using the service are now using a more secure service. Quick counterpoint, criticizing the correct thing. You're right that like Mulvad and IVPN, they all get issues found too, but they fix them. So I'm going to criticize Google for that. They didn't fix a lot of these issues. If they do, then you're 100% right. Just because issues were found doesn't mean, depending on what they were, like obviously if they're storing passwords in plain text, that's really bad, but... Severity does matter. If they're issues that like anyone could conceivably make these mistakes, then that's fair. Sorry, that, that little detail at the end, that big detail did not quite register. I assumed that it was all fixed. I hope that they are fixed. And if that's the case, then what I said still stands. Migrating over to politics. So the Senate has passed legislation to ban TikTok from US government devices. Nate said it's a little surprising. I'm mixed on it. I guess I could see it going either way. The vote was unanimous. The bill must still pass the House and be signed. So it's not official yet, but the House has expressed some concern with the language. So there's at least a little bit of kickback. I know you have thoughts. I'll just let you share your thoughts. I probably agree with them. I want to respond particularly to some of the comments I've seen when I posted this story. This is probably not a controversial statement. One of the reasons that people should care about privacy is freedom. It gives you the freedom to not be influenced by tech companies and advertisers because they're not tracking you across the web. Stories like Cambridge Analytica or, you know, the whole reason they're banning TikTok is they're worried about Chinese influence on people and things like that. And like I said last week, yeah, the U.S. is doing it too. We're not trying to give them a pass. We're just, but follow me on this one. I've seen a lot of people who are saying things like they should just ban the app entirely and they should just blah, blah, blah. I, I just want to note that personally, I really take issue with that because that's stripping people of their freedom. I have no issues with banning it from government devices. In my opinion, I'm surprised they didn't do it sooner. I, I think they should expand that ban to include like Facebook, Instagram, Google, stuff like that. But for individual people, obviously, I don't think anyone should use TikTok. But to take that choice away from them and say you can't no matter what, that's stripping people of their freedom, and I think it's really antithetical to what privacy is about. If people know the risks, which granted, I admit, most people don't right now, but hypothetically, if people knew the risks and they chose to use it anyways, that's their freedom. Yeah, I just wanted to address that, because I've seen a disturbing number of people saying, like, we should just ban it from America entirely, and it's like, what about your individual freedom to do whatever the hell you want? Something I'll add there, because you mentioned banning Facebook and all these other services. That's where from government my devices. Head goes regarding this because the reality here is TikTok is kicking Facebook's ass. And it, it's the fact that TikTok is Chinese that people want to ban it. It's not because of privacy. It's not because of anything. Like Facebook is just as privacy invasive. Most of these social media platforms are just as invasive as TikTok. The only difference is now another country has power over the US because they have this 
behemoth of a platform that can influence people at will. TikTok is a dangerous platform, as most social media is. If it was under US control, it wouldn't be banned. So this really is just a power thing that I see, and I think it's ridiculous that these bans don't extend to other privacy-invasive platforms as well that are only exploiting people. What about Google, who's tracking your location even when you turn off the toggle? What about Apple, who's sending personally identifying information even when you opt out of that? Like, yeah, exactly. They don't care about that. It's ridiculous. Our next story is a quick one. Lockbit claims attack on California's Department of Finance. Another week, another attack that directly affects vital day-to-day services in your everyday life. The state says that funds are safe, but really hasn't said much else. Lockbit has claimed that 75 gigs were stolen, containing databases, confidential data, financial and IT documents, and the deadline to pay is December 24th. Last story in politics, Play Ransomware claims attack on the Belgium city of Antwerp. This hits the city's IT, email, and phone services. It also affected job job applications, libraries, and new agreements. With that, we'll move into the free and open source news. And we're going to start off with Twitter suspending Mastodon's account. This story goes back to Elon Musk banning... um, We may or may not have covered this on Surveillance Report. I can't remember. But somebody made a, a bot Twitter account that posted Elon Musk's private jet's movements, which Elon Musk, I think, tried to get it taken down. But it was public data, so he couldn't get it taken down. So when Elon Musk bought the platform, I'm not going to lie, I I was joking that he bought the platform just to shut this account down. I don't think that's actually what happened. That was just a joke I was making. But Elon Musk actually said no. I claim to be a free speech absolutist. I'm not going to shut that account down because it's free speech. And then he did. He gave no warning. He shut the account down. And then a couple hours later, he uh, tweeted a new policy update, if you want to call it that, where he said that doxing will not be allowed. And he he defined doxing as sharing someone's location in real time. Okay, I'll be honest. First of all, that's kind of gra- garbage that he banned the account and then announced the policy change. The kid who runs the account says he didn't get any warning at all. Even if you're like, well, yeah, he was doxing Elon Musk. Like, okay. The guy also ran several other accounts that track things that were not in real time. Like, uh, I think one of them was like the Hubble telescopes location. All of those accounts got banned too. And even his personal account, which was not doxing anyone. Although again, I could see people making the argument that it's like, well, it's his account. He owned it. So the, the way this relates to privacy and how it related to Mastodon is, so Mastodon has a Twitter account, had a Twitter account. It was joined Mastodon. When the Elon Musk jet guy got kicked off of Twitter, he moved to Mastodon, or maybe he was already on Mastodon, I'm not really sure. But either way, he had a Mastodon account. So a lot of people were just, I don't even think it was like a movement. I think people were just being their sarcastic usual selves. And they were like, well, you know, the guy's on Mastodon if you want to go follow him there. And Mastodon retweeted that and got banned. And then subsequently, any journalist who covered this story, like, and included screenshots like, hey, Elon Musk banned Mastodon's account because they shared about the Elon Jet guy, also got banned. So he banned literally dozens of journalists In addition to Mastodon's official account, at the time of this reporting, a lot of Mastodon links, including links to Mastodon.social, and I'm I'm hearing conflicting reports on joinmastodon.org, but a lot of them are either not being published, or they are being published with a little, like, warning that, like, you know, this link may be, or this, this tweet may be potentially harmful or whatever, so, you know, nobody's seeing it unless you go to somebody's profile, and even then you have to click the warning to see it. I've been hearing this for weeks, for the record. This is not a new development. PixelFed is also being censored. Some people are saying it's just instances, and smaller instances will post the first time. And then, I guess, once the Twitter site indexes it and realizes it's Mastodon, subsequent posts won't go through. 
But then I've also heard some people say Joint Mastodon's being banned. Some people say it's not. So I guess just be aware of that. Next story, we went on a big tangent. I don't know what we're going to keep in. So I don't know if this is going to make sense in the final cut. But speaking of Jack Dorsey, he says he will give $1 million per year to Signal. Awesome! And Calix Institute. I don't know what he said. I think he said it was a million as well. So this is just one of many grants he plans to make to support open internet development. He specifically name-checked Mastodon and Matrix as worthwhile projects and said he's much more interested in protocols and standards rather than simply a decentralized Twitter. Why that's interesting is because uh, Jack Dorsey worked on Sky, Sky Blue which is a decentralized version of version of Twitter. I'm going to be honest, uh, this is a personal note. I've always liked what Jack Dorsey has to say about things. There's been very little that Dor- Jack Dorsey says that doesn't make me think he has like overall like a good intentions for things. I really think that like he had good intentions for Twitter and Twitter became a public company and at that point it becomes kind of like profit driven and the CEO probably has less say than people think they do. Jack Dorsey actually follows some of the people that like we talk to on Twitter. I believe he follows Seth for privacy. Which, like, Seth has interviewed me on his podcast, Seth has interviewed Nate on his podcast. Jack Dorsey is, like, one person away from us. For all we know, he knows we exist. If you're watching, hi, Jack. Yes, Jack Dorsey, if you're watching our podcast, hello. We do appreciate what you do, and it's cool that you do care about privacy, because this isn't the first thing he's done um, that actually helps the privacy space. So I hope that this helps signal, and it's awesome to see the Calix Institute see this. Okay, our next story is really, really quick. It comes from Tutanota. It says, U2F support is now also available on Android and iOS. So the title says it all. If you want to harden your email account as much as you can and lock it down with a hardware token, two-factor, You can now do that on Android and iOS, which is awesome. Up next, Pine Tab 2. The Pine Tab is a Linux tablet from Pine64. This will feature beefed up specs, which is a mid-range quad processor with 8 gigabytes of RAM compared to the first gen. It will also have better construction materials, like a metal chassis that can be taken apart without tools. It has two... USB-C ports, a 3.0 and 2.01, a micro HDMI for output, a front-facing 2-megapixel camera, and a back-facing 5-megapixel one, with Wi-Fi and Bluetooth still being decided upon, and it also has a 6,000 milliamp battery that may also change. They're hoping to make it available in late January, but we can't say for sure yet. That sounds fun, but like everything that Pine64 puts out, it's the software that I'm more interested in. This PineTab 2 reminds me a lot of the PinePhone Pro. Like, it's like a higher-end, better version of the PinePhone. This is like the better version of the PineTab. This next story is a real quick one. I, I, I'll be honest, I don't know how to pronounce this. Uh, a Crescent? A Crescent? is now in alpha. And Acrescent is a novel Android app store focused on security, privacy, and usability, open source forever. Right there on their website, they have it listed out very plainly. I'm just an idiot, so I don't know what a lot of these things are, but it offers unattended upgrades, better like key signing that's supposed to be more resistant to like somebody publishing an app and posing as a legitimate app, posing as something else. You don't need an account to use it. So it's basically just trying to be like a better I actually don't think it's a front end for F-Droid the way the Neo store is. I think it's supposed to be the total alternative. It's supposed to be its own app store. So I don't know how many people are using it, but I know I've heard a lot of people like really hyped about this for a long time. So for those of you who are interested and you're Android users, this is now out. Firefox 108 is out with security fixes and Windows 11 efficiency mode support. We're sharing this because it addresses eight unique security issues with an aggregate security rating of high. If you're a Firefox user update or just enable automatic updates, And it's cool that it now integrates a little bit better with Windows 11 because I know both Apple and Microsoft do this. They constantly tout the battery efficiency of using the default browsers. So like Microsoft Edge is supposed to be more power efficient on Windows 11 and Safari is supposed to be more power efficient on Mac OS. So it's kind of cool to see other browsers maybe be a little bit better. 
Okay, in our last FOSS story, the 2022 Lifetime Account Charity Fundraiser has started, and this comes from Proton. So what this is, is you buy, I think they're like 10 bucks a piece, you buy a raffle ticket, you have a shot at winning a lifetime membership to Proton. In return, all the money they make from that, they use to support, uh, I think like 10 different privacy-focused projects. So some of them are like actual software projects like Cubes and Tor. Some of them are like nonprofits like Privacy International and Fight for the Future. Definitely check it out. I, I think you guys will be pleasantly surprised to see some of the names on the list. I'm probably going to grab a couple tickets myself. And now Misfits. We only have one story. NIST has retired SHA-1 cryptographic algorithm after 27 years. So the title says it all. SHA-1 was published in 1995. It was considered secure until 2005. And most organizations who aren't totally negligent have been, remo- have been moving to newer, better algorithms since 2010. All major browsers have just altogether stopped accepting SHA-1 SSL certs in 2017, but Microsoft took a little bit longer for 2020. Long story short, like this is just not really used anymore. So as of December 17th, NIST has officially recommended nobody use SHA-1 and instead upgrade to SHA-2 or ideally 3. After 2030, government agencies will be forbidden from purchasing any software that still uses SHA-1. It's cool, but it's been a long time coming, and this probably should have honestly all happened a little bit sooner. This is like the formalities. I think the whole industry's already moved past it, but the formalities are still catching up here. That'll take us into our Q&A section. We only had two patrons ask questions, but each of them asked two questions, and I think they were really good ones. So... We're going to start with a non-patron who said two questions this week. Number one, you two tend to agree on a lot of things related to privacy and security, but is there anything you fundamentally disagree with or just have to agree to disagree with each other about something? Nothing really came to mind for me. I know we're... Oh, uh... I got two things. Oh, okay. What you got? Matrix. Oh, yeah. You're wrong about that. Matrix and forums. forums. Yeah. (laughs) I, I know you hate forums. It's it's not so much that I hate forums, it's that they're just not for me. Like, I don't hate them in the sense that, like, I don't think anybody should use them. I much prefer a more real-time chat option. I do not like Matrix, and I know you like Matrix. I I love the concept of Matrix. I want Matrix to be great, but realistically, when I use it, I just get pissed off every time. It has so many issues, it's so slow to use, it's so clunky. For the record, I won't say it's a perfect platform, but yeah, I, I don't think it's anywhere near as bad as you seem to have that experience. I guess it also depends on what you needed to do, though. Like, I just needed to, like, send messages reliably, which I think it does. You can send images, which is cool. There's emoji reactions. The built-in moderation is a little lacking. It's pretty crappy that, like, the only decent automated moderation is Mjolnir. I also don't use it for any bridging whatsoever. I've heard the bridging is miserable. You know, one thing, and this this actually is a hot take, and it, you know, people might be mad that I'm saying this. I don't understand the concept of decentralization for a, a message from one person to another doesn't make sense to me at all. I don't see the use case. I don't understand. The, I, so I understand Matrix from a community perspective, but I don't understand it from like user to user. To me, it makes sense to me in the sense of um, censorship resistance and owning your data. Because when it's, it's a, a weak selling service, point, though. I, I guess it depends. But for what? Like what? what's the problem right now with obviously things can always happen, but you can just migrate to another centralized platform that doesn't do that. So like what's wrong with Signal? And how? Okay, Signal's but then what if you don't want to migrate? Like... I got all my friends and family using Signal, and let's say, hypothetically, something bad happens to Signal tomorrow, they become compromised, or they get shut down, or whatever, now I have to migrate all my friends and family over to something else. Like, a lot of people have reported that. They're like, you know, when I first got into privacy, I got everybody on Wire, or whatever, or this thing, or that thing. How's Matrix different? 
Because it's censorship resistant. You're uh, uh, okay. So depending on what home server you go with, that might be something you have to worry about still. But it's harder. Like you can't just blanket ban Matrix. But there's so many layers. What if the Matrix protocol has a serious security issue? And then then what? But or what if well just then it, it'll get fixed? I'm Matrix... not talking about when I when I talk about signals getting compromised. I talk. I'm talking about like if signals gets compromised, it's centralized. So somebody can come in and take over. Like I'm talking about like. Okay, signals a bad example. Signals not designed that way. Like, signal uh, okay, yeah. So signals a bad example. But okay, but again, what if signal gets shut down? If if you know matrix.org gets shut down, the matrix protocol is still open source. Like that's what session said about their thing. Is like if if session gets shut down, somebody else can just fork the protocol and move on. You can't really do that. I mean, I guess you could do that with signal because it's open source. But then you'd have to rewrite it to be interoperable with other servers, and you would have to turn it into. A federated thing whereas it's already federated with and i I see the downsides of that too because you know there's a lot of matrix servers that are outdated or poorly secured because the sysadmin doesn't know what the hell they're doing but at the same time like i I don't know you say you you don't see the point of it i do see the point of it i see there are uses where it would be valuable yeah i just don't think those uses are worth not using something like signal which does i I just don't consider matrix a very secure platform for one-to-one messages I mean, security and, is a different story. I, I said well, just the value all, is... <laughs> all things considered is what I'm saying. Like, I just don't understand Matrix as an as a one-to-one messenger because it's not as secure as the others. Uh, it leaks a lot more data than the others. The selling points of Federation don't seem to apply as well to a one-to-one environment. And so for me, I just don't understand the use case of Matrix in that. And maybe I just need to be educated better. I'm, I'm open to that. But I really like the concept of Federation for communities, um, for what you said. Like, it's really hard to shut down. You can't shut down Matrix. It's just impossible. That's really important, and we need things like that. I am on that page as well. I was just going to say, I guess that's why I don't hate on it so hard, because I already view it as a community tool. Like, I don't have any sensitive conversations over Matrix. I take those to Signal or Threema or Session or, you know, something else. Tools that are actually designed to be more more focused on security and the one-to-one communication, so. And then Federation and, like, other things just makes a lot of sense to me. Like Mastodon, social media, the way that ActivityPub integrates with PixelFed and Bookworm and all these other uh, services that all integrate with Mastodon, like, that makes so much sense to me. And it's like, wow, imagine if the whole internet actually connected this way. That's how the internet should probably function. Yeah, I think this is probably the thing we disagree on the most. I think most things back here we're pretty much on the same page on. But there, you just got a whole, like, little insight of us debating a little thing. So I think I think that answers the question in its own way. Yeah, I think I think there's things we do disagree on, but I, I don't think there's anything we disagree on so much that I mean obviously there's nothing we disagree on so much that it's like we can't work together, we can't talk about this this disagreement. And then the second question they asked, outside of privacy and security related things, what are some other stuff you guys are passionate about? You can go first. Well, I'm an introvert. I'm pretty open about that. So I'm really passionate about anything that I can do indoors without getting out of my getting out from behind my desk. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I've mentioned that before. I'm really into true crime, which I know is probably weird, but I love true crime. I'm really passionate about music. Those are kind of like the two main things for me, but I don't know. I like learning. Uh, some of the podcasts I listen to are like stuff you should know, just general knowledge. Comedy. I watch American Dad, Futurama, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Occasionally I hang out with friends if I've known them for a while and, you know, I do have friends, believe it or not. I'm just very like, why don't you guys come hang out here so I don't have to leave? <laughs> I like to read when I have the time, but it's very rare. On my end, I run a lot, a lot, pretty competitive. I coach cross-country and track at the high school level so that's already like two big things i do play violin i read 
I love listening to music as well, as most people do. I love art, so I love going to museums. I do make a little bit of my own art, but it's nothing crazy. That's why I was gone last weekend. For those who don't follow Mastodon, I went to a string quartet concert at a museum, and they played all the songs from like Studio Ghibli movies, and then um, they opened up the museum for us afterwards, which was a lot of fun. And I got to see a lot of my friends there, too. Yeah, that's right. I, I do have friends. Sadly, not as many as I wish I had in my area, but I do have friends here and there, too. So Henry and I actually ran way over schedule, and he really, really had to go, so he's going to bounce out, but we're almost done. We have two more questions from Patreon. Not actually Patreon, but the user Patreon. Question number one, This uh, I'm just giving this a shout-out, to be honest. This is not necessarily an endorsement, but I'm sharing with you guys in case you'd be interested. He says, have you ever read Tracers in the Dark by Andy Greenberg? It's a super interesting read of Torah sites and how they were so hard to figure out who was running them, and eventually how they were taken down. They all seem to be discovered and dismantled by simple errors made early on, and tracing techniques that they could be that they could use to find wallets associated with those sites. Really paints a picture on why you should layer your defenses, and why treating everything like it is compromised can actually benefit fit you. I've not read that, but in case anyone else is interested, I'm definitely going to be checking that out. Related to that, so their question, hypothetical situation for viewers to think about. What would happen if one of your security measures was broken? It could be something as simple as an attacker stealing your laptop with full disk encryption, but it was still open, or Monero becomes traceable at a large scale. Is there anything else attackers would have to do in order to fully compromise you? And I think that's a good question, because I'll be honest, if somebody stole my laptop, like it is right now, decrypted, I'd probably be in trouble, especially because I use the YubiKey Nano, so my YubiKey lives in my computer, but that's why, you know, when I step away from my computer, I shut it down. I think that's really just a good thought experiment for everyone. And you gotta strike that balance, you know, because truthfully, we could play the what-if game all day. So when I said I step away from my computer, I mean, like, when I step away, like, when I leave the house. When I'm gone, I shut down my computer. You know, we could play the what-if game of, like, okay, so what if I go up to get a drink of water, and the FBI kicks down my door and takes my computer while it's unlocked? Like, we could play that game all day long. And at the end of the day, all you're going to do is run yourself ragged because as we always say around here, nothing is ever 100% secure. That said, it is really important to think about that little stuff. So I, I think I mentioned before, I have an external hard drive that I use for backups. It's sitting right there on my desk, like arms reach away from me. It's tiny. It's like... I don't know, it's like the size of a, a desktop hard drive. When I first bought it and I was like, okay, I'm gonna use this as a backup drive. One of my first thoughts was like, literally anyone could break into my apartment, grab this thing off my desk and go. I encrypt it. The only time it's ever decrypted is when I'm actively making backups. And then the rest of the time it's encrypted. So again, if anybody breaks in while I'm not home, it doesn't matter, it's encrypted. They're never gonna get into it. So just little things like that. I, I think those are really good questions. And that's kind of part of threat modeling. You know, think about that. Think about layering your strategy. What would happen if one of your security measures was broken? These are really important things to think about. Um, good question. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. So Google is adding end-to-end -end encryption to emails. Should be a little more accessible, but it's a good start. There's uh, some new stalkerware on the block. I actually read a couple of articles about stalkerware this week. So, you know, always be on the lookout for those. Uh, one of them rebranded and came back under another name. That was like a last minute article. TikTok is banned on government devices, which personally I'm in favor of. I don't really think that's a hot take around here, but that's pretty cool. Twitter has suspended Mastodon's account. Yet another Uber breach. Surprisingly exciting week. Nothing major explosive, I think, but still a, a lot happened. So stay subscribed and we'll keep you updated on all of that stuff. If you want to keep us going and help us out, be sure to support us. There is Patreon and Monero. Patreon is fiat currency. You get some perks. Right now we offer show notes. We offer an ad-free segment and we offer the chance to ask a Q&A question like a non-patron and Patreon did. And Henry and I are actually in talks to finally revamp it, like we said. And I think we got some cool stuff coming that you guys are gonna like. So uh, keep an eye out for that. 
Just FYI, for those of you who are currently subscribed, you will not be losing anything. If anything, you'll be gaining stuff. And then for those of you who prefer something a little bit more private and anonymous, there's Monero. Monero is a privacy-focused cryptocurrency. You can send us some cash. We don't know anything about you, but we do see the contributions and we appreciate them very much. They do help. Thank you guys for listening to the Surveillance Report. The final thing we want to ask for you is to share the podcast around. Make sure that you are subscribed and give us a rating if you're on a platform that allows you to do that. If you're on YouTube, Odyssey, PeerTube, go ahead and like, follow, subscribe. We want privacy to reach as many people as possible, and you can help do that. Every little bit helps. Thank you guys for listening, and um, I actually don't know if we'll be here next week. I have to talk to Henry about that, but we will definitely see you soon. We're not going anywhere. So whether that's next week or 2023, we'll see you soon. So take care.